Exodus chapter 35, verses 1 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from what from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and, and fine twined linen, goat's hairs, tanned ram skins, and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Let every skilled craftsman among you come and make that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its hooks, its frames, and its bars, its pillars, and its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen. The table with its poles and all of its utensils, and the bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light, and with its utensils and its, its lamps and for the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles, and, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar for burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles, and its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hanging of the, the court, its, its pillars and its bases, the screen for the gate of, of the court, the pegs for the tabernacle, and the pegs of the court, and their cords the finely worked garments for the ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used at the tent of meeting for all of its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were willing, of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or, or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who can make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it to the Lord, brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in, in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and the stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and the spices and the oils for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. 
all the men and the women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, you tell us that the word of God is powerful. For it is your very words. It is inspired. And Lord, therefore it is for our good. All of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Everything is for our good. For our benefit. For our growth. To be built up into the body of Christ. So Lord, I pray this morning by the working of your spirit, Lord, that you will work within me a a broken and flawed man that I may be faithful to your word. And Lord, through a special gift this morning, Lord, that you will change our hearts and our minds so that we will be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to be more like Jesus himself. This we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So four weeks ago, um, we looked at a certain section and we learned something about the people of God. We learned something about ourselves. Four weeks ago, we learned that um, Moses had, uh, re- had some time with God. And in that time with God, there was something that happened to him, right? He spent some tremendous time with God, and as he came down from the mountain carrying these two tablets, there was something about his face. It was glowing, and the people were terrified. There is something different about Moses. He had spent time with God. He was glowing. He was radiating with the glory of God. And that moment, his glowing said something about the message that was going to be coming from him. It's not Moses anymore speaking. These are God's words coming through Moses. And therefore the people listened. Moses was transformed with being in the presence of God. And we were able to see how the power of God changes Moses. And it also changes us. It changes us to be able to see the kingdom of God by having hearts changed because of Jesus Christ, because of the gospel. Just as Moses was changed by being with God, the same is true for us. And I hope in some way over these past few weeks that we have had those moments where we have beheld the glory of God, where we have been changed from one degree of glory to the next degree, from one degree to the next degree. Every week that there is a moment of change where we, we embrace God, we see God, we see His kingdom coming more and more true in our lives, in our marriages, in our children, in our workplaces. Then we saw how God, uh, and all this is because there was even before that, there was a moment where the children of Israel ran from God. Moses was spending 40 days and 40 nights up in, in the, with God, and the children of Israel were getting quite distressed. Where is Moses? We don't know where he is. So create a, an idol for us. And we hear that God is a God of second chances. Although they had worshipped another God, 
God reiterated His promise for His people. I will be your God. I am still your God. And I am reissuing my covenant again with you. Broken, lost, wandering people. I am still your God. And both of these accounts of a God of second chances and the glory of God are, are serving kind of a, leading us to the culmination of Exodus where we find in the very last chapter where, where Dr. Riken will be preaching, it's kind of the culmination of Exodus chapter 40 where God is actually going to be dwelling with His people. He's going to be found in their midst. The whole tabernacle is going to be filled with the glory of God. God's presence is going to be in the midst of all of His people. And it's leading to that point. And that should be the most exciting part of this book. But we need to remember, up to this point, there has been no construction whatsoever. There is no bronze fire pit. There, there is no uh, incense table. There is no table of the showbread. There is none of this yet. All of this was, in fact, quite on hold because of the children's propensity they're, they're worshiping another God. Their rebellion put everything in jeopardy. Everything. So today, this text serves as a hinge. It, it, it's, it, transitioned, it helps transition the, the driving forward movement of the book toward the moment where God actually is coming near. So it's, it's doing this connection between the God of the second chances... And the building of the tabernacle, which ultimately is going to be driving to that moment where God draws near with His people. Next week, we are going to be covering chapters 36, 37, 38, 39. I really want to encourage you to read ahead of time. Because I'm going to next week be choosing a section, not reading the whole thing. But I want you to get the whole enormity of what is going to be gone, the, going on. The building of this beautiful place where, where God is finally going to be coming, dwelling amongst His people. So read that ahead of time. But in this story, this story, the people are between the promise of God, the promise of God coming near, the God of second chance, and one of the most significant moments in all their faith and their obedience with God asking them to build a tabernacle exactly as He prescribes. They are to build a facility which God has, has promised to inhabit and they must build it precisely. He says, this is the way and the place that I am going to be worshipped. What is fascinating to me about this whole thing, let me get a little bit more comfortable. I'm going to try something a little bit more dif different, even though that feels very natural for me down there. What is fascinating to me about this text is that the actual construction begins with God giving them some instructions about Sabbath and their call to be generous. 
Why does God kind of stop in this moment and say, okay, before we go any further, I'm going to give you some instructions. It feels like up to this point, they have received a tremendous amount of instruction. This is how you're going to live. These are my Ten Commandments. I've given you a bunch of case laws about how you handle different kinds of problems. I, I've, I've reiterated my, my covenant with you. I've reestablished my relationship with you. It feels like God's been doing a lot of instructions, but God does one more pause. He says, listen, I'm going to give you two more points that I've already spoke about, but these things are critical. What I've read about other writings and other uh, authors and as I've reflected upon what's going on here, it seems like God is taking this overarching obedience of the people and he is reducing it to something that needs to be embraced personally and weakly. The people needed to reaffirm that they have embraced the God of the second chances that they're embracing this, this second chance to be God's people. Twice it says in our text, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. These are the things that God has commanded you to do. In verse 1, it relates to one thing. And in verse 4, it relates to another thing. Verse 1, it says, you must... Take a Sabbath rest. Verse 4 says, you must be generous. And I take this to mean that the, the children of Israel were to reaffirm their allegiance to God, their love relationship with God through rest and generosity. And it was to be intentional. And it was to be personal. And it was to be corporate. Or let me just put it this way. Rest and generosity are a celebration and an affirmation of grace. Rest and generosity are a celebration and an affirmation of grace. By resting and by giving, the children of Israel affirmed and celebrated God's covenant with them. And I'd like to suggest to, to you today even that celebrating and affirming this is still a very important part of our relationship with God, even though we're not Old Testament people. Celebrating and affirming God's grace through resting and through giving are a critical part of our life, of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ, to be Christians. So we're going to look at resting and we're going to look at giving. And then I want to help us understand what rest and what giving does for our souls, does for your souls. So let's first look at rest. How many of you would say that you come here this morning, honestly, if you could just be honest, tired? The rest of you, I'm not so sure are really refreshed. I can kind of hear it in your singing. I can kind of see it in your timeliness. Man, you just dragged your butt out of bed this morning. Rest. It's a hard thing for us to really do, right? Because we, we're, we're living in a culture that is driving us to constantly work, to work, to work, to go, to go, to go. You know, our iPhones, our, our, our devices are constantly binging and ringing and lighting up and telling us, look at this, I already got an advertisement here. 
that's saying, listen, you must be keeping on going. Don't rest. In fact, it, it just buzzed again. It's telling you, you got something urgent to address right now. Some of you even, I, I can see it. You're reading your Bible on your iPad or your phone. In reality, you're going, you're kind of making it bigger going, oh, really? And I know you're not reading because all of a sudden something binged and you've got to address it right now. So we have a hard time resting. But Moses delivers this command from God to the people. And this was kind of the point of his glowing face saying, listen, I'm speaking for God on behalf of God. And listen, this is the first command that you're going to hear from God. It is for you to have a Sabbath rest, to rest and this was not a coincidence. Moses laid out the basic principle in verse 2 along with the penalty. Did you pick that up? Six days of work shall be done. Six hard days of work should be done. But on the seventh, you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Most of us right now, I'd have an empty church. Dead. So the, so the word, let's just kind of go back and look. What does Sabbath mean? Sa Sabbath means a cessation or a, a stopping. It's literally, I want you to have a stopping day. I want you to cease doing something. Another word for Sabbath is rest. And it does not necessarily, when I grew up, the Sabbath day was kind of a nap day. After we went to church in the morning, We'd go to grandma's house. We'd have some shake and bake chicken, some amazing whipped potatoes, some green bean casserole. It was an amazing kind of warm, warm kind of food. But then everybody would kind of recess to the TV room. We'd turn on football, and we would take a nap. Did anybody else have that kind of a Sabbath? You know, you used to, I'm turning everything off, and it's Sabbath. But that's not necessary. That might be a part of your, what it means to rest or to cease from working. But, but it, there's so much more. The intent was that there would be one day a week where one's regular pattern would be intentionally interrupted. It would be stopped. And the purpose of that day was for a refocus, to insert a refocus into your weekly rhythm. The pattern was an important part, important way in which God cre even created the world. We know in Genesis 1 and or Genesis chapter 2, the heavens were all finished. He, he built the entire world. It was all kind of put into place. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh, seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all of his work, all that he had done in creation. Was God exhausted? Was God tired? Did God need a vacation? Was, was his back hurting because he had been working so terribly much? Is that what was up with God that he said, man, it's, I, I need to take a pause right here. Well, we know that God is all-powerful, all-consuming all in all that he does. He doesn't get exhausted. So why would the God of the creation of the world in his creation process work hard for six days in creating and speaking and forming all these things? Why would he take one day and stop working? If anything, he has not even been tapped for all that he can do. 
he could keep going ad infinitum forever and ever and ever and ever. So there's something more to Sabbath than just a physical break. And that's why God made Sabbath part of the creation of the world. So don't make the mistake of thinking that the seventh day is, a, is not a vitally important part of the, the whole created order. God's activity involved seven days, and each day said something about who He is as God. Sabbath rest was and is a statement. It says something about God. God designed each day to not only create the world, but to magnify His power and the beauty as God. And on the seventh day, it, is very, it was a very important part of His creative design. And let me explain why. A day of rest was built into a system of creation, and it communicates that creation is not ultimate. Creation is an ultimate. It creates that there is something more powerful than creating and something more powerful behind creation itself. Sabbath says as much about God in one day as what creation says about Him in six. God chose to rest even though He was not tired and He was not bored. He rested because He he could. He rested because he was God. Sabbath was part of God's design to clearly communicate that there is something more to creation than just creating the world. Sabbath was designed to be a, a conduit, a, a, a tunnel, a, a way to commute, communicate the supremacy of God in all things. And when Sabbath was laid down as a command, it is to connect the activity of God to the life of mankind. In the same way that the seventh day communicates something powerful about God, the command to rest also communicates something powerful about God. It is given as a reminder that, that life is not about constant creation. Hear that. Life is not about constant creation, insatiable production. Life is not about unending labor. Hear that. Some of you need to hear that with an exclamation mark, and you need to write it down and circle it. Put it on your mirror. Put it in your car. Put it in your work cubicle. Life is not ultimately about constant creation, insatiable production, and unending labor. That's not what, what life is ultimately about. Intentional rest reorients hard-working humans on what is really important and who is really in control of everything. It mirrors the activity of God. It reaffirms God's place in this world. Sabbath rest gives us a different perspective too, doesn't it? I'm sure you've experienced this often in your lifetime. You've come to, to, to make a really big decision. Maybe a house purchase, maybe a, where you're going to move, where you're going to live, where you're going to send your kids to school. You're going to make some really big decision. But you found yourself needing to say, I, I just need to sleep on this. 
You know, I'm going to come back to it tomorrow. Maybe there's, maybe there's something about disengaging that helps you gain a brand new perspective on things. Or perhaps you've experienced a, a fresh creativity or a new vantage point on life or a problem while you were on vacation. A different location, a different rhythm, a different schedule allows the mind and the soul to think beyond the immediate and the intensity of everyday life. Those seasons help you to put things into proper perspective. We need, as a church, I'm not encouraging you to disappear every weekend, but we need to have a good theology of vacation, of getting away. Having been gone for an extended amount of time from the 14th to the 24th, it, it reopened my mind to say, okay, what, what is it that God's calling us to be about, to do? And it takes those times of disengaging and rethinking with new schedules and new ways of living and new ways of reading for God to enter in and say, hey, have you thought about God needed to build into the system a, a, a need and a requirement of Sabbath rest. And he needed to put it into the very fabric of created order. He not only created human beings with the limitation of needing physical rest, but he also commanded that we rest one day a week. And God takes this very serious. Very serious. Verse 2 indicates that one... It's to be set aside as holy unto Paul, holy unto Matt, holy unto Sarah. No, holy unto the Lord. It's, it's set apart for his purposes. And then he not only says that, violating it is means for the capital punishment. Verse 3 makes it even more practical by, by staying, saying, listen, and this is what I mean. Don't even start fire. You know, and fire back then would have been, man, this is how you make food. And some of you are going, score! My kids are going to be having peanut butter and jelly from now on. I don't even have to turn on the oven anymore. This is perfect opportunity. I've been looking for a verse so that I can tell my kids, I don't want to cook today. That's not really what this is about, but it might work for you. So why was Sabbath so important? Because it celebrated and it affirmed God's design. It affirmed that God's commands are more vital and more authoritative to a person's life than work and production. Keeping Sabbath was a way of affirming God's plan and God's design, but also celebrating something. Sabbath celebrated God's grace and the freedom that it brings. Sabbath celebrates an identity that is linked to who God is and not what you have done. Tim Keller, and I really want to encourage you to pick up this book by him. It's called Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. Tim Keller, Every Good Endeavor. You can get it for your iPad, or you can get a good hardcover. And he makes this, this very helpful connection for us between identity, Sabbath rest, and the gospel. He says this, all of us are haunted by the work under the work. 
that need to prove ourselves, to, to gain a sense of worth and identity. But if we can experience gospel rest in our hearts, if we can be free from the need to earn our salvation through our work, we will have a deep reservoir of refreshment that continually rejuvenates us, restores our perspective, and renews our passion. Do you see what's underneath this concept of rest? Do you understand that why, why taking Sabbath is so important for the sake of your soul? Sabbath was an indicator that the people had embraced God's covenant, that they trusted Him and Him alone. It was a regular affirmation and a celebration of God's grace. He has saved me so I can rest in Him. So I'm going to try to drill in a little deeper for your lives and hopefully make you squirm as it makes me squirm. But do you make rest? Do you make rest a gospel-centered priority in your life? Really? Do you make rest a gospel-centered priority? I need rest. I need to hear from God. I need to be restored, rejuvenated, and resent out. But first, I need to rest. Do you schedule seasons for rest, like vacation? And do you use that time to reorient and reevaluate what is truly important? Do you make Sunday worship a priority in your life and in your home? Do you make it a priority? Do you, use, do you set the tone for a different focus and activity on Sunday? Do you? Or is it more like, well, let's giddy up, let's go kids, come on, we got to run around. Fathers, maybe, maybe it can start with you. You're the first one up. You turn on the worship music and you say, woohoo, it's Sunday. And the kids go, what is wrong with dad? Hey, come on, it is Sunday. You know, we got the clothes ready to go. We got the food ready to go. I've made pancakes with blueberries in it. I've made it with sausage, your favorite thing. Because you know what? We got to have enough energy. We're going to church. Usually, if I remember, it was often kind of dragging and kicking and screaming out the door. But fathers, maybe you can lead the way in being excited about Sunday morning worship. This is a priority for us. Do you even plan the night before because you know that the Lord's day is coming? Do you plan for what kind of activities you do so that you are truly able to engage fully on Sunday morning? Or do you come tired because, man, it's a weekend. I, I have it coming to me. I need to go out and enjoy because Mondays are coming. So I'm going to stay up to one or two in the morning. And it kills you, your day of rest. Do you prepare your heart, engage in worship, listen with attentiveness? And connect with people on the Lord's Day to fan into flame what is really important for your heart. Or do you do your hour and a half and giddy up, let's go. I've done my time. Are you, are you basing the pace of your family from your work schedule to your kids' schedule on your value set or the value set of your neighbors and peers? 
Where's your value set coming from? So Sabbath rest is more than just sleeping. Hear that? It's more than just sitting around and relaxing. It might be a part of it. Sabbath rest is a different kind of activity. It is a celebration and it's an affirmation of God's design for the world. It declares your allegiance to Him and your dependency on His grace. Sabbath is a, is a counter-cultural statement, isn't it? It says... My identity is rooted in God, not myself, and it's not in my work. It's a celebration and an affirmation of God's design. But what about this generosity piece? That's the thing I kind of like going through whole books. You're you're forced to kind of deal with all the subjects that kind of come up, and this happens to be generosity. We don't speak really much about generosity in sermons often, but this, this is, what is generosity? Generosity is celebrating and affirming God's provision. God's provision. The second celebration, is, it's evidenced through the people's generosity. They're instructed to give in order to provide for the materials needed for the construction of the tabernacle. This is the second time that the phrase is is used. This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. He's commanding them. Listen, I, I want you to keep the Sabbath, but generosity is also another very powerful statement about their allegiance to God. Moses commanded the people to bring a contribution, and you can see that in verses five through nine. And there's two things to notice about this passage. First, the kind of offering that was to be received was very, very broad. Very broad. The people were to give out of what they possessed, what they had. And there was a great variety of the kind of offering that was to be brought. Some brought metals, some brought textiles, some brought oils, some brought spices, spices, some brought beautiful uh, twine together this or uh, ram skins or whatever. They brought all kinds of things. The point here is that simply the fact that the people were to bring an offering out of what they owned. These gifts were then put into good use. Verses eight, uh, 10 through 19 describe the skilled craftsmen that were used to construct the very, every aspect of the tabernacle. And we're going to We've seen a lot of this already before as God gave the instructions to Moses. But we can also see, secondly, it's important for you to see the importance of the heart motivation in the act of giving. The heart motivation. It shows up first in verse 5. Whoever is of a, what kind of a heart? A generous heart. Let him bring the Lord's contribution. God clearly commands that offerings are to be given, but he's not interested in an offering that comes from begrudging gifts. We have a certain, nope, I'm not going to mention names. Um, I know of a person that when, there's a certain person in our life that is, um, man, we feel obligated to give a gift to that person. And you know how much heartfelt uh, planning and budgeting go into that? Zero. We often make it to Target 
just in time to get a gift for that person because there's not a tremendous amount of gratitude and love and connection, but something is happening here and God says, listen, I want you to give because you have a generous heart. You have a, a grateful heart. You, you recognize the grace that's been poured out to you. I want you to give because you want to give, not because you are compelled to give. He invites people to give and the gift that is, is totally really immaterial unless it is a willing heart and a joyful gift. And verse 5 is not the only place where this theme is evident. God seems to need to drill it down even more. In verse 21, and they came. How did they come? Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. They brought a contribution. In verse 22, and so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. And then verse 26, all the women whose heart stirred them. They used their gifts to spin goat's hair, of all things. Verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them, they brought gifts. So the pattern shows a clear priority in how God views giving. Central to the beauty of the gift is the heart of the giver. The heart of the giver. Do you know why this is? It is because the gift was supposed to be an act of worship and love. So the heart, the willingness of the soul is what makes the gift a gift. This is why this is the way that giving works. And this is a the theme of a cheerful giver, right? That's highlighted in the New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this, according to Paul. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a... Uh, he loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. God was not about meeting a need. This was this was about worship. It was not God wasn't just saying, man, I, I need some construction stuff. God said, listen, I want this to be a worshipful experience for you. Giving celebrated and affirmed God's provision in their lives. After all, God was the creator of everything, and he didn't need it. He could have just said, and there it was. And it could have just shown up. But giving provided an important opportunity for the people of God to affirm their allegiance to God and to celebrate the fact of everything that they have is from Him. And their giving to the tabernacle would create a, a reorientation of the heart that would not be present if God simply just gave it to them their heart would follow their money. Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 12, right? Sell your possessions give and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that will not fail where there no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, 
there will your heart be also. So there's a connection, a direct connection between our money and our heart. And the tabernacle need was more than just collecting the necessary materials for construction. God had designed giving to be something that was really helpful for the soul. Think about that. Giving is good for your soul. And I'm not sure you're convinced. Because I'm not seeing a lot of, yeah. Because you're going, that's going to affect my budget. Giving is good for your soul. Willing and joyful giving celebrates and affirms God's gracious provision to your life. Giving is a tangible expression of our understanding and our belief of who God really is. That He is the one who will ultimately meet all of our needs and He will provide for us. Giving celebrates that fact that God is in control. 2 Corinthians 9, and God who is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In light of this, let me ask you some more questions. First, it was about, about Sabbath, but let me drill into this, this giving and generosity from your heart with willing hearts and willing souls. Do you see the connection between your understanding of who God is and your giving? I I think that there should be, as your mind is blown away by the generosity of God, and you understand more and more and more about the gospel and the grace and mercy that's poured out, it should have a direct connection to the generosity that we express on a week-by-week basis. I'm blown away how God cares for me and loves me and provides for me. How He has saved me from the pit of hell and he has, He's rescued me. Man, how do I respond? I, I want to respond out, out of gratitude. So do you also realize that while God doesn't need your money, hear that, God doesn't need your money. It really is good for you to give. And I'm not talking as a paid staff person or a budget that needs to be met. There's a connection. There's a connection here. God doesn't need your money. But He designed a way to help you grow in your soul. Do do you see how giving affirms your trust in God? Do you? Man, it'd be a lot easier just to put that in a 401k or to to put it towards paying this bill because, man, that'll give me a lot more security. But in our giving, it says, God, I I trust you. I trust you with my my whole life. I'm not my own, but I belong in totality to you. So God, I trust you. Do 
you also understand what, what an impact giving has upon the, the reorientation of your heart. No longer does your six days of labor, which often builds up that, that, that checking account, the giving says, hey, God, my week is really about that. It's about responding to you in all that I do, and particularly today. It's reorienting my heart. And here's, here's a big question. Are you really a joyful, cheerful giver? Are you? Do you say, I can't, if you're a check, if you write a check or you set aside some cash at the beginning of the week, do you just say, I cannot wait to give this? I, 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 can't, I can't wait to do some online giving and boost my, my giving because I love this. I love giving stuff away. It's easier to give other people stuff away, right? You know, if, if I had your unlimited resources, it's easy to give away your resources. But wait, isn't that kind of how it is with God? He's a God of unlimited resources, and he has blessed you with resources of time, of talent, and treasure. And should we not say, God, you've given me this? You want me to spend this for your kingdom purposes, for the betterment of my family, of building them up in Christ, to reaching the lost for, with the gospel? You want me to do that? <laughs> Okay, I can't wait to blow this, if you will, on your purposes. Joyful, cheerful giving. Giving is a powerful statement. One that knows God is really good with our souls. It is, man, man God, I know you, you, you love me. It celebrates and affirms God's provision in our lives. Therefore, it is one of the things that God commanded his people to do at the renewal of this covenant before the beginning of this, the building project. So I find it fascinating that God bridges the second chance opportunity and the construction of the tabernacle with commands about Sabbath and giving. So what is the connection between them? What, what is the spiritual value that we can find in rest and in generosity? So here's the first one, Nathan. They remind us that work and possessions are not ultimate. Rest and giving are, are God's a God-given antidote to succumbing to the cultural pressure of a performance mindset. Work and possessions can easily become an obsession for us, right? Some of you are already thinking, man, I got to get going. I got, I got stuff to do. Work and possessions can easily become a, an, an obsession. Even as we compare ourselves to others and the, the love that success brings. And there's a, this gravitational pull for all of us toward materialism and, and giving your identity to what you do and how much time you put into it. Rest and giving just shatter that notion. 
When you rest and when you give, you are making a statement with your life. And you are saying that my work and my possessions are not ultimate. God is. But they also, secondly, rest and giving create a gap which is filled by faith. Both rest and giving just create this gap and rest creates a work gap because you know that you could be doing more for work, right? Man, I got to get, get back and do a little bit more. I could be adding more value. I could be creating more security. I could be earning more money. But giving also creates a gap by giving money away that could be used to meet your personal needs or your personal preferences, both now and in the future. Giving decreases your ability to bridge the gap between your present situation and your future reality. And it must be filled with faith. God, I'm taking a day. I'm taking the day to enjoy you, to grow in you, to trust you more, to be rooted more deeply in who you are and who you created me to be. I'm taking a day, and God, I am entrusting back to you your gifts that you have given to me. God, listen, and I don't know how this is all going to work because my boss is screaming at me for some more time, and I feel a pull to do more, and on top of that, I've got bills to pay, lots of bills to pay. So God, I'm going to trust you. In faith, I'm going to trust you. Thirdly, rest in giving are tangible expressions of trust and worship. Rest involves the use of time and Giving involves the use of money, right? Both are very specific and they are very real. How do you know if you are trusting God? How do you know? Well, one answer is to look at your pattern of rest and giving. They are pretty good leading indicators of the condition of your soul. Rest in giving. Fourthly, rest and giving are beautiful in that they create a very unique and beautiful opportunity for the people of God to do something together. Part of Sabbath rest is corporate worship. Us coming together. And there's really something powerful and meaningful about being together on this day, the Lord's day, set aside to be holy unto the Lord, a solemn rest. But there's something powerful about the collective giving, collective giving of the body for God's purposes as well. To think that collectively we are able to both worship and to provide a place to meet with God is really special. As we think about the future of us as a, as a community of faith, are we staying here? Are we going to go somewhere else? Are we going to find another place that's going to more meet our needs? Man, that is something that we can do as a community that is tangible. Uh, us trusting God and leaning, leaning in on Him in all things. It's something that we do together. It creates a community. And lastly... 
Rest and giving affirm what is really important to us. The choice to rest and the choice to give are both powerful statements about what we really value, about what is really important and who God is in our lives. On a weekly basis, rest reorients our lives and our hearts towards the gospel. It reminds us that we are a rescued people, loved by God, and that we live by promise. We live by promise and not by performance. Hear that. We live by promise and not by performance. Rest preaches grace to our souls. Giving affirms that life is not all about possessions, security, comfort, or a standard of living that is normal. Giving preaches the beauty of trusting God and believing in an economy of grace. So my friends, I I trust that you can see why God gave these commands after being the, giving them a second chance. Well, he said, I need you to rest. I need you to trust in me. It's my design for you to fully trust me. Rest in me. And ultimately, that rest is not just found in a day. It is found in a person. Trust in Christ. That he will meet your every need. And it is not about your performances, about being just right and doing all the right things. You are resting in the promises of the gospel. They are powerful statements about our belief and our trust in God. So as we're going to come to the Lord's Supper It's our opportunity to spiritually feed on Christ as we rest in Christ. It's our opportunity to be nourished and reaffirmed that this is true. Just as real food fills your belly and gives you strength and nourishment, so does Christ as we consume Him. Nourish and feed our souls so that we are strengthened for today and the rest of this week. So let's pray. Let's find our hearts ready as we come before the Lord. Let's pray.